Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a veteran of the football journalism industry, a published author, and is now training to be a qualified therapist. Matt Dickinson currently works as senior sports writer at The Times and is the author of two books, Bobby Moore, The Man in Full, and Manchester United, The Treble, and all that. Matt has worked for The Times for 25 years, but when he hit 45 years old, after a period of mental health difficulty, he realised that he had been living life at such a fast pace in the proverbial rat race of London, that in his words, he didn't have a clue who he was. So, he took stock, evaluated his life, and now works part-time studying to become a therapist while still working part-time as a football journalist. In this episode, we discussed how and why he got into the sports journalism industry, getting into a very unconventional industry through a conventional route, the previous drinking culture that existed in sports journalism and how that's changed over the years, and the competitive and at times cutthroat nature of the industry too. For Matt's mental health, we discussed that huge moment in his life where he had that mental health epiphany that he didn't know who he was, how we went about discovering who he was, and his therapy journey too. We finished by talking about the sudden loss of a childhood friend of Matt's, the impact that had on his mental health, and his attitude towards life from that point onwards. I'll also finish this intro by putting on record my thanks to the absolute gent that is Henry Winter for helping me connect with Matt and making this podcast happen. So this is how my check-in with Matt Dickinson went. Matt Dickinson, welcome to the Just Check-In pod, mate. Thank you very much for putting the time aside out of your busy journalism and part-time therapist life to talk to me and check in with me. First off, how are you? How was Christmas and New Year? Yeah, pleasure to be invited. And yeah, no, I'm good. I had a bit of family time. I, w- I was at Qatar for the World Cup for three weeks, for as long as England were there, which sadly wasn't the uh, final week. But that was quite an experience on many levels, part football tournament, part social um, you know, study. <laughs> Experiment, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, but back from that and uh, yeah, a couple of weeks off over, over Christmas and looking forward to all that 2023 brings. Brilliant, mate. You are a titan in the football journalism industry but i'm sure many people listening to this episode will find your journey perhaps surprising or or just interesting outside of journalism so without further delay are you ready to start the show absolutely let's start your pod by talking about your 25 year long sports journalism career mate so tell me how and why you became inspired to be a football journalist in the first place where your love for writing or storytelling or everything in between started and the journey to where you are today. Yeah, starts a century ago. But yeah, I was basically like a lot of young kids. Sport was my obsession and for probably longer than I should have done, I imagined that I might play for England at football, cricket or something else. And that dream came crushing, crushing to an end as it does for for most. But I still had the obsession with sport and one way that I worked out that, you know, I I read a lot of sports books. I read the sports pages as a kid. 
yeah, anything to stay involved in sport. And I guess that began to combine with journalism. I, I was very, very lucky. I had an English teacher when I was at um, secondary school who ran a school magazine. And I think at the time he probably sort of had to slightly strong arm me into it. But I started doing stuff literally, yeah, for a school school magazine. I think he saw I was, you know, interested in reading papers and just current affairs as well. So I did some stuff with that. And I mean, wonderfully, that English teacher is still in touch with me, still emails me very regularly to compliment or correct <laughs> something I've uh, <laughs> written in the Times. But, you know, it's lovely. It's lovely that he's, you know, I hope still feels invested in the journey. So, yeah, it was a school magazine and then on to university where um, I started a law degree for all of three minutes to realize that was um that was far too much like hard work and swapped to history which did give me the time to stay involved with student magazine uh, i was sports editor of that and covered some sports for that and they just really i guess all the time trying to work out how i could combine a bit of writing with my great passion you then did a postgraduate degree at cardiff university's journalism school so you've obviously at that point had dipped your toe into journalism through school through your undergrad degree but what did you learn during this period and how did you then make that transition to fully fledged journalist afterwards the great thing about Cardiff I mean and I know these journalism schools still exist is that you know I think a lot of us sort of swanned into it thinking oh you know we're all going to be writing features for the Guardian you know and that student um, <laughs> student arrogance or aspiration of the time and and it was great because there was a guy the main tutor had just come straight off one of the local papers in Wales and and basically told us that you know we were all sort of up ourselves and put a big red pen through our highfalutin fancy language and said look you guys have got to learn the real nuts and bolts of the trade it's a one-year course and most of us did move from that on to local newspapers in my case the Cambridge Evening News but it was very much a proper vocational grounding in in the industry I had to do shorthand that was compulsory part of it you know had to just literally be sent out onto the streets um, as a sort of exercise and don't come back till you've got a story which was great because you know it makes you inquisitive about people it makes you resourceful you know you just literally have to sort of walk up to a policeman in the street and just say look I'm a journalism student and <laughs> anything going on which was rudimentary training but actually I would say you know you could say that's almost the basis of a lot of journalism it's that ability to find something out of nothing you know to sort of start the day with an empty notebook and hopefully by the end of the day find out something that the world doesn't know. You started your early career by working in local journalism and you cut your teeth here like most journalists do. So what stories were you working on and how did that, in your words, give you the best grounding for what you'd go on to achieve? I'd say, I mean, the great thing about local paper and I was on the, as a news trainee then, not not sport, was just the variety. I mean, you know, I'd, I mean, I, I'd, as the trainee, I was from the sort of ridiculous, which was there was a I remember a stray dog that was attacking or threatening to attack local residents and I was sent out with a string of sausages to see if I could bring it in, basically. <laughs> I think there was a picture in the paper of me being chased across a common by this rabid dog holding a load of sausages. Wouldn't get so, past yeah, me off in safety now, mate. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I'm not sure that would still would still last. But there was that to the the other extreme, I guess, which was what is called rather sort of crudely in the industry, death knocks, which is when... The news editor would look through the paper and, and and the sort of obits and people who had been lost and see look oh you know someone's died here who's age twelve what's that about well how mm. does a twelve year old die and that would be again dumped quite often on the the junior reporter to sort of go and find that out so death knocks a terrible phrase but you would literally quite literally have to go and 
knock on the door of a house and just say, look, I'm come here to inquire about the loss of someone. And that sounds, you know, does sound a maybe quite heartless bit. But often, I mean, there was one case for me where it turned out a, a kid had died and his parents had decided to give all his organs, donate all his organs, and, and they were very keen to publicise it. So actually that turned into quite a moving and positive story out of tragedy. So it was that sort of variety that I loved. And it was just, again, a really good grounding in grappling with the world in, in many different ways. As your career points out, you didn't stay in news for too long and you broke into the sports journalism industry. So how did you go about doing that so that you are now sat here with this ton of experience in the industry so basically i would when i was at that local paper came news i'd just walk over to the sports desk and pester them and say look if you know if ever there's a chance to go and cover a football match or something then and again I, you know i speak to and get contacted by a lot of sort of young guys who are trying to get into journalism and i always just say possibly the biggest skill in the trade is persistence to the point of being a pain in the backside i'm sure at times but that is often what gets you a story and gets you into the trade I would just be a pain to the sports desk until they sort of gave me some jobs to do and that gave me a bit of experience in sport and then I used to go down to the Daily Express in London and do a little you know I mean literally go to a game for them even if it meant getting two or three paragraphs in the paper and you just start off with those sort of humble beginnings and but at least then you've got in the door you've got your face recognized you've you've just been persistent enough that when a job came up in Manchester on the Daily Express in the mid-90s as a sort of number two to the guy who was covering Man United that was like a dream job I mean this was the you know then by far the biggest most successful club in the country you know all the great names Eric Cantona, Alex Ferguson, Roy Keane, Beckham etc it was literally a dream start to um, a career in sports journalism. Well you've written a book about Man United but before we talk about your books you described your route into journalism off air to me as conventional but in a very unconventional industry. What did you mean by that? So, yeah, I think when I, you know, talk it through, I've, you know, to do a degree and then that postgraduate year and then local paper and then national paper does seem plenty of others have done that. And that's almost sort of taking it step by step. I think one of the great things about journalism and one of the challenging things for those trying to break in is that, you know, it's not like law or accountancy where there are set exams and rungs of the ladder. You know, some people spend a lifetime in local papers hoping for a big break. Others skip local papers entirely. You know, some people happen to be in the right place at the right time and land a plum job very young because they've shown a spark of ingenuity or it's an industry, you know, and I'd say speak to plenty of of students trying to get in. It's actually quite a hard one to advise on. And even more so now in the digital world, you know, I came up in the sort of more conventional newspapers were dominated everything now it's obviously you know a lot more diverse industry there is no set path there are certain things you can do and I would say that again it's back to that persistence the main thing is to get experience it doesn't almost matter what experience is just get out there be busy get yourself noticed and show that you've got curiosity and resourcefulness I think those are two massive skills in journalism We're going to talk about your books briefly now because you are a published author of two books. The first one you wrote was about the West Ham and England legend Bobby Moore, who's sadly no longer with us. Tell me how all that came about and can you go to pubs in the East End where I live without paying for your pints because of it or not? (laughs) Yeah, I think he was interesting because, you know, I was born in 68, so missed still no England team as one I woke up in my lifetime. And obviously I got heavily involved in, in covering football 
And Bobby Moore is obviously an icon. I mean, who is the one figure outside Wembley Stadium? It's Bobby Moore on a pedestal. And I would walk past that plenty of times every year. Bobby Moore would come up as this iconic figure. But I I just, and I'm sure we'll sort of come back to this when we get on to sort of therapy chat, but I just used to look at that statue and just think, here is this guy standing up there. He's, a, he's basically a patron saint of English football. Mm. But is that reality? You know, can anyone be a saint? You know, he was a footballer and who must have, like most footballers, had a lively time off the pitch. We used to speak about him as if he wasn't really human. I didn't want to sort of tear him down from the pedestal, but I did just want to humanise him. I wanted to find out, you know, and there was amazing stories in his life. You know, he had cancer, testicular cancer when he was 23, you know, before the World Cup final. And that story at the time was kept entirely secret because you know the stigma that came with cancer and particularly with that type of cancer so there was that in his life you know there was he went bankrupt post-playing you know he ended up working for the Sunday sport as this sort of revered English captain and so there was all this sort of nuance to his life that was it really I just wanted to take the saint and make him more human and and I hope I achieved you know I was relieved you know back to your question about walking to the pub so there was a, a little bit of trepidation, obviously, West Ham fans having him as a saint for them. But I was really pleased that you know, 99% of the reaction was people saying, look, I actually admire him more for learning about the challenges he went through, the disappointments he had. You know, I think people realise that you know, human life, I think I use this phrase in the book, you know, shit happens even to saints. And I think mm. you know, most West Ham fans I spoke to did prefer to understand the full life rather than just the sort of, you know, neatly packaged dianification, I called it, you know, this idea that mm. we have living saints among us is just not realistic. Your second book was about the 1999 treble winning Man United side. What inspired you to write this? Was it just being a Man United fan or was it an alternative desire? No, I'm not. I'm a Cambridge United fan. Which oh, is, for yeah, your sins. <laughs> for very, your sins like me. A very different thing to being a Man United fan. Um, almost not the same sport, probably. But no, I... I that, <laughs> it's like being a Huddersfield fan at the moment, mate, for me. Yeah. Right. Yes, sympathies. But no, I basically, as mentioned before about going to Manchester in the the mid-late 90s, I mean, that was just the golden ticket in sports writing because of what was achieved there. The treble is still a unique achievement of what that team did in 98, 99. It wasn't just that, but they did it in the most dramatic, ridiculously dramatic way possible. And also this was a dressing room packed full of, to me, fascinating characters, characters that I was lucky enough to sort of deal with at the time. You know, helped write Gary Neville's autobiography, involved with a book with Beckham and, and had sort of definitely my perspective, not theirs, sort of felt like a grown up a bit with those guys when they came through into the team. So I just wanted to relive what to me was just one of those seasons you couldn't make up if you tried a time that felt as a journalist, there was definitely a difference that you could get access. You know, we used to have Alex Ferguson's home number, you know, we used to deal with him all the time, you know, Alex Ferguson would read your stuff and let you know very quickly and very vociferously what he thought of it. I mean, literally, you know, I've been sort of pretty much pinned up against a wall by Alex Ferguson. So there was a proximity and intimacy that I miss a bit. And I just wanted to, it was a sort of unashamedly nostalgic book about not just a great football team, an amazing cast of characters, but just happy times. I mean, I was there for Oasis at Main Road in the 90s. It was, it, so it's a sort of, yes, I'll never write a memoir, but this one has a flick of it. They're just sort of reliving what felt like glory days. Mm. 
Mm. That's really nice, mate. We've come to the part of the pod where I speak to journalists about industry issues and the ones that they want to talk about through a mental health lens. And the first that you wanted to talk about is drinking culture, which maybe previously existed in sports journalism and how you've seen it change during your career. So tell me tell me more about this. I think like a lot of industries have had to, had to shift. But I mean, when I first started in the trade, European trips abroad could feel like stag do's, basically. I mean, that was just, you know, we didn't have mobile phones on us. I mean, that's that's how old I am. My sort of kids can't believe that there was ever a time without mobile phones. But there was a sort of looseness about that. There was a sort of freedom about that. And journalism came with a reputation for sort of work hard, play hard. And that's undoubtedly what happened. And that's it was unsustainable. It was you know, bound to change in, in the modern world. But you know, old school reputation for long lunches and even longer evenings was a lived reality for many. And you just saw, I've described it, I hope, with great passion as one of the great jobs. But it also comes with stresses and strains. The fact that, I mean, one of my colleagues used to say it's like sitting a exam paper every day of your life because you pick up the paper and the world and your bosses and the readers can see if you've done a good job or not you know they can see if you've been beaten by the opposition because it's obviously a very competitive industry in newspapers to get the best story and get the best interviews and so on so you know I'm not pretending it's brain surgery I'm not pretending it's you know it's a privilege to be in it and at the same time it was that work hard very competitive nature of an industry quite macho and that came also mm-hmm. with that sense, you know, certainly back in the 90s of hard living as well. And, you know, there have been plenty of you know, people in the trade who've had to struggle to find the right balance of that. That drinking culture could drag a few people down with it. Well, you spoke there about competition and I've spoken to a couple of sports journalists who cover Huddersfield. And, you know, like footballers, you have to work Christmas Day, Boxing Day. New Year's Day, all these times which are unsociable, make those sacrifices, maybe not to the same extent that footballers do, but definitely in the same world and same sphere. So when you add this competitive nature onto it, what are the knock-on effects that you've seen in yourself and perhaps in your colleagues from a mental health perspective? You know, and it becomes this because I say it's a great, if you care enough about it and, and enjoy it enough. I mean, again, another colleague says it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. And, and I think... <laughs> Most families, certainly if committed journalists, would certainly agree with that. I mean, I remember last year I had a bank holiday at home and my wife said she thought that was the first bank holiday we'd ever spent together. And I sort of said, don't be ridiculous, but actually thinking about it because sport takes place on bank holidays. Newspapers certainly don't stop on bank holidays. And again, I'm not expecting anyone you know, to get the world's smallest violin out for this. This is, this is what we sign up to. But you know, the best journalists I know are relentless. The best journalists I know are you know, obsessed. The best journalists I know are sort of, you know, on the phone 24-7 or, you know, if anything happens, they drop everything and they're jumping on a plane somewhere or scrambling to to find a story, especially now 24-7 news and online where we can break a story. And, you know, used to be that you had to obviously wait till the next edition was coming out. Now we can break a story in 30 seconds, you know, so it's, and, and with Twitter obviously adds to the competition because, you know, directness and speed of it. So, journalism is done well is a full commitment and say it is a a lifestyle choice and that is a great excitement but obviously takes its toll as well people do get burnout Mm. I mean say it's not the only industry with that but it is full-on and you know again when I'm speaking to people who are looking about signing up to the industry that would be one of the things I'd say to them is sort of do you care enough are you committed enough passionate enough that that lifestyle sounds one for you 
fortunately, mate, I just about lived in a world at the start of my life without phones. And when I did have phones, it was Nokia brick and then Motorazor and sort of things which didn't have social media and were very low technology. But with the advent of social media, that world has now completely changed. And it's completely changed with journalism too. So how has that played into this aspect of competition and the need to present yourself professionally online too? Yeah, I have a real... I was going to say love-hate relationship with something like Twitter. I, I, I'm Just afraid. hate, hate. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it really has to. I mean, Elon Musk not doing much for the, the love bit either. No, I, I mean, I think it's been a, such a useful tool in so many ways. The fact that you can, mm. can get out stories there, sharing anything that helps share information has to be a good thing or should be a good thing. And the fact that journalists are accountable is a good thing. You know, if, I, if we write something wrong or contestable, then... We certainly find out about it soon. But, you know, that comes with flip size. It comes with people who become incredibly you know, sensitive to that you know, feedback, which is not always delivered, shall we say, in the politest way or the most constructive way. I mean, I, I'm not certainly not comparing myself or any journalism to sports stars. But I mean, if I was advising sports stars, I would say get the hell off a lot of social media or, you know, I mean, there's people say about leaving it to their teams or their advisors. Well, I'd sort of, I mean, obviously we want messaging to be authentic, but I do wonder whether any young footballer benefits from searching through social media for the feedback. I think it would drive me mad. I mean, it, I've actually got pretty robust to it. I think that's just grown a thicker skin, but I certainly know of younger journalists who've been overwhelmed by it. You know, they write something and there's just a, hundreds, if then thousands of responses saying piece is terrible or you know you write something that is necessarily contentious you know we're dealing with racism issues we're dealing with sexism issues mm. you know it's, it's not just writing about sport we're dealing with taking the knee you, you write something about that and of course Lewis Hamilton yes has become this hugely polarizing figure for all sorts of reasons that I find troubling so you know you're dealing with that sort of stuff it does stir up in the social media world some nastiness and worse mm. and so say I think I'm old enough and been around the block enough that I now find it easy to switch off from it but I know many who haven't found it that easy and say certainly younger journalists who've been deeply troubled by how they handle it because you know you ideally you'd want to engage and you'd want to go back and discuss stuff with people and be polite on Twitter and say engage with people but that in itself can become you send one reply and then you could spend the rest of your day on Twitter. And again, is that really the most productive use of your time? Let's reflect on your journalism journey then, mate. So going along it for as long as you have, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? That's a good question. I would say after a while, I certainly became the balance, what we talked about, about getting, you know, it being a lifestyle. I think there are times when I definitely got that balance wrong. So, you know, I'm sure when we get onto the therapy side, we'll talk a bit more about that. The good side is that curiosity with people. I mean, you know, it's not just... When we talk about sport, we sort of can easily imagine it's about results and who scores goals, but actually it's about fascinating people, people at the top of their game trying to do extraordinary things. And that's endlessly fascinating. On the plus side, I've got to travel the world, go to dozens and dozens of countries watching amazing sport. So I think there's a just, I've always had that curiosity for travel as well. So there's lots of things in me that it's it's really benefited. And on the debit side, there have been stresses and strains where um, sometimes you handle it fine and other times less so. But I think it's, it's an industry that 
can feel quite exposing. It's an industry that, say, as we've touched on, is competitive, can be egotistical and can require a sort of a real drive and focus, which, again, those sort of qualities can be quite double-edged. You know, they can be the best of people, but it can get quite feisty and <laughs> quite feisty in there at times as well. We talked all about Matt, the journalist. I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, mate. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Walk me through early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Matt we meet here? Oh, that's, yes, that's, that's probably the toughest question of the lot, but I think... Um... <laughs> that's the easy one! <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm worried now. But no, I think the one you meet now is one that's um, been in therapy for seven years. So Mm -hmm. is certainly so much more self-aware now than, you know, he's ever been, than I've ever been in in life. I sort of look back and basically, in a nutshell, I think we sort of managed to function very well. I think like a lot of people, they can be on the surface functioning well in professional careers and perhaps even in private life as well. But there is all kinds of sort of stuff bubbling up under the surface. And I think for me, say it took to my, I mean, sometimes you sort of can feel like a a sort of midlife cliche, but it took me to midlife for a lot of stuff to catch up with me, I guess. Family stuff, childhood, there's been divorce in my family, there's been complications with that there's been what we've touched on in journalism about you know getting priorities right in life and you know family of two sons as well and I just think by the time I got to my 40s bits of myself I didn't really like bits of myself felt like Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting the balance right between work and life stuff that I just feel like I'd probably just you know like a lot of people do shoved under a carpet and hopes I'd never have to think about or or look at and yeah I just got to mid 40s and realized that basically I wasn't really entirely happy with myself basically you said to me off air this was a very much an epiphany moment for you and you said you didn't really have a clue who you were so tell me just about that moment first of all where were you when it happened and how did it feel when it washed over you in essence well, I think it was really, again, I think now I'll, we'll get on to, I'm sure, but training as a therapist. I mean, one thing I always and really hope I cling to is the you know, the admiration for one of anyone who walks into a therapy room, because I think it is a scary thing to do. Mm. I think it is. I try and make sure I'm really conscious of just what a daunting step that can be for people, because even though I was lucky to, to walk into a room, say, in my sort of mid late 40s and find someone who couldn't have been better at settling me and making me feel like no no you're not going mad you're just confronting challenges at a point of life you know I I think I sort of feel like I staggered in there pleading for help and it just very very quickly became clear to me that I was in a place where I could just sort out my mess and I would be met with care and attention and that to me ended up proving you know life changing yeah i would say therapy wouldn't hesitate to say that therapy was and has been life changing so i know that maybe is not everyone's therapy experience but it certainly was as you sort of mentioned me being evangelical i mean obviously now i'm training to uh, be one that was the impact that therapy made on me it was it was literally a sort of feeling of 
wow, this process is extraordinary and what it can offer to other people, I would like to share if that is at all possible. We're going to talk about therapy, like you said, in just a little bit, mate. But I just want to reflect on this epiphany because when most people think about a midlife crisis in quote unquote, in the stereotypical sense, they might think of, say, a man who goes out and buys an expensive Porsche or completely changes his wardrobe or a very extreme, you know, ends a relationship and goes off with someone else. But for you, it was very much this feeling of existentialism and purpose. So how did you realize it wasn't something that was based on those stereotypes? And what gave you clarity? I think it was just squaring up how I'd got to to where I was. And with therapy, basically just, I mean, I think the Freudian phrase is making the unconscious conscious, you know, that's, and that was a crucial thing, just tracing through the steps of my life, you know, what I'd grown up with, what effect that had had, you know, that classic, I mean, where people, for example, are taking stuff out on their family, the closest family, their nearest and dearest, and they don't realise that that's actually because that's a behavioural pattern that's been in them. You know, they're not actually shouting at their wife or their kids or someone else. They're actually shouting at something from 20, 30 years ago. That sense of how much we carry from our upbringing, how much we carry from our, say, in our unconscious. And it was as I described it once as it felt like joining the dots of my personality it was literally taking Mm. what was a jumbled mess and actually saying ah right this overworking I've got where does that come from well it comes from because you felt this need to achieve since you were x years old just those drives and traits make sense of them and put them in a place and once you start to just have that awareness. It takes the power away from them, I think. When I say about making the unconscious conscious, once you start bringing it to the surface, you realise, well, actually, do I have to Do I have to be that way? Can I, by being conscious of my impulses and nature, can I master it myself? And, and I think that was mm. been the crucial shift in me. You decided to access therapy to find out essentially who you were and sort out all of these issues, mate. So... Have you realised who you are now or not yet? Um, because I, th- I think it's a work in progress and always will be. I don't think you ever, there's this sort of phrase in therapy of self-actualization, and I, I've never seen that as, as a sort of end point, far from it. I mean, I, this might be a bad analogy, but I'll try it anyway. But I sort of see the self now as a sort of, you know, if you imagine a village of huts and those huts are all our sort of the traits of a personality and the skill in life is to spend more time in the huts that are healthy that are happy but the other ones still exist that that can sort of drag you in back to that sort of unconscious you know you can get sucked into old ways if if you're not careful but also the great thing about that village is that there is more and more huts always to explore I, I think all of us have a huge huge capacity and range for self-awareness and self-exploration and we can never know I think you know we we all possess a vast range of traits and so on it's it's simply do we have the time or inclination or capacity to keep exploring them and discover new things about ourselves and that's again that's one of the you know if I get evangelical about therapy I think it is you know real deep belief that you know if people want you know, and, and again preface it with saying this is a tough journey for many people there's a there's very good reasons why human beings are avoidant by nature I think you know it's it's hard Mm. to go and sift through all the crap in your life and things that are easier just left 
But if you do, my experience, and I stress it's my experience, is that on the other side of that process is the chance to just learn so much more about yourself than you ever felt you could. Before we move on to this journey of becoming a therapist, one thing that you did want to work out during your own therapy journey was this idea of success and chasing the idea of success. So what did it look like to you then before you went in? And what does it look like to you now? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think certainly like many people bound up with that very stereotypical idea for many years of success is, you know, the big job, the bigger salary you can get, winning awards and so on. And I'm not exactly saying I'm rejecting, um, reject, suddenly turned around and said, yeah, I don't need any of that. But I do think it certainly opened my eyes just to, to a sort of deeper, that basically, you know, certainly in an industry like journalism, you can spend a whole lot of time looking for outside affirmation all the time. You know, you're in a very, say, public exposed position. You're putting material out there day after day, the world can come back and tell you whether they think it's good, bad or worse. And you can get very bound up in that, you know, and that was partly my nature as well was to get very bound up in outside affirmation all the time. Is it good enough? Is it good enough? Is it good enough? What are people saying? And actually realize, you know, it matters what people think of your work. It, I care. Uh, stuff is well received. If Certainly if you spend months and years on a book, you don't want it to just sort of disappear into a void. You, you want people to enjoy it and like it. But you know, you can also drive yourself mad with that sort mm. of need for affirmation. You can drive yourself mad. You know, if your self-esteem depends on that, you know, you can drive yourself mad if you have that fragility, vulnerability that if you don't get the reception you want, that is not just a reflection on the work, but reflection on you. You know, it's not just a bad piece. It's I must be a bad journalist or I must be a lesser of a human being and I think you know that's an easy thing to slip into for many people but I think the exposure of journalism could make it particularly stark and harsh and mm. again my journey has been very much a sort of grounding that you build your own resourcefulness and self-worth becomes robust enough that you do care about what other people think but it's not going to define you and it's not going to define whether you're having you know having a you know just try and say to myself every now and then you know six out of ten days are okay you know we all have them you can't live life like if you know unless it's nine out of ten it's a failure that's just not going to sustain for anyone after this therapy you decided to turn this negative into a positive and like you say become or begin a journey to become a therapist yourself so what was it about that therapy experience that made you want to provide it yourself to other people? Was there a, an altruistic spark that was created within you? Was it just you wanting to, as you said, like this evangelical message to kind of give it to the masses? Or was there another factor? Yeah, I certainly altruistic would be, um, you know, I hope to share it. But, uh, you know, I'm sure there is self-interest. In fact, the first time I walked into any counselling course, um, the tutor there you know asked everyone to introduce themselves and say why they were here and before anyone could start he prefaced it and just said look and if anyone says I'm here because I want to heal the world they can piss off now basically because <laughs> you know that might sound harsh but I liked it I liked what he said because you know there are many caring people in the industry there are many people I want to share but actually you know if I go to look around any course I've done everyone is there for their own reason as well the young phrase about the wounded healer everyone mm 
is there because they are, I think, want to help and want to share and want to engage with other people for their benefit. But also they are finding out something in themselves or healing something in themselves or there is that self-drive. And I don't think that's anything to be ashamed about, say, as that tutor said, he wanted to hear it because I think that's, as we learn in a crucial part of the training, is that unless you're as self-aware as you can be, then you can't really, you're in no position to try and help others find the same. So a lot of the early training in particular is very much about you, your own material, and that's necessary. You now split your time, as I said in the intro, between working part-time for The Times and your training to become a therapist. And similar to me, much like I do with fitting life around the podcast rather than the pod around my life. Do you feel like this new journey of being a therapy has given you a new purpose or was it your purpose in the beginning but you hadn't discovered it yet? So yeah, I have wrestled with that a few times and I ultimately... I think there is yeah, there are obviously massive differences between journalism and therapy. And at the same time, I think there is enough overlap that I can sort of make sense of it. That You know, I do think, as I think I mentioned before, you know, it wasn't just interesting at the time it felt interesting sport, but actually a lot of it was also just interesting people doing amazing things as well. I mean, I'd say that writing that 99 book was the main drive to it was actually, you know, of course, it was an incredible achievement to win the treble, but actually it was how did these people do it? What was it about this group that was so special and so unique? And what was the human dynamics that made it happen? And I, I think I've always had that interest in motivations, been doing my journalism. You know, there's nothing more interesting than to me than what are the motivations that you think about endurance athletes, think about Tour de France cyclists, think about, you know, runners and guys you know I've always had a fascination with endurance sport in particular and just what is it about these people that can get them to drive through pain or to suffer as much as they do and come back for more so I think I've always just had that real fascination with human motivations and drives and the therapy so you could argue in some ways you know therapy is is both a different very different tack and also a sort of extension overlap of what I think I was most interested in in the first place. We're going to talk now about the final part of your mental health journey you wanted to discuss, mate, and it's the death of a good friend of yours to a sudden heart attack a few years ago. And this has been in the news when it comes to other examples of perhaps footballers going through it. And I've had personal experience of this myself. So before we talk about the event and that grief, just tell me about the man he was and your relationship with him. Yeah, this is a very, very dear friend of mine, Roger. I was at university with him and yeah, he was just a a lovely, lovely guy, terrible dancer. Um, he used to read the FT even at university, which is a miracle that we were friends after given that. But um, he, he was just a, a very smart, even then he was just smart as hell and he knew that he was going to end up being a fund manager in the city and colossally successful at it. But even more admirably than the success he had there, he decided in his 40s that he'd had enough. He obviously was lucky enough to have the means to do this, but he just decided one day that he was going to jump out and move to a farm in Cornwall and decided to sort of change his life and put his own well-being and health first and uh, you know massive admiration for someone who's just got the 
you know, so easy to stay in that sort of rat race and so easy to just think, oh, you know, I could do with another million more. But he just decided, no, it was time to get out. And of course, that makes it all the sadder to me that, you know, he, it was just the day before my 50th birthday. And he was obviously going to be very, very much part of the celebrations. We'd been on many, many trips together through our lives and, and shared much. And then, yeah, that day his, his wife rang and said that it had a catastrophic heart attack and um, we'd lost him. So, mm. yeah, and I, I would say it's been you know, one of the, not just one of the saddest things in my life, but the most profound that I don't think I've reflected on anything. I don't think it's sort of, you know, I'm sure anyone who's lost someone close, but I think, not saying particularly a peer, but in its own way, I think losing someone of your own age and someone of your close rocks mm. your world in a particular way. I guess it, you know, it's, it's the sadness above all the sadness of losing your friend, but it sort of really throws your whole view about your own mortality as well, I guess. In the weeks and months that followed, you told me that his death provoked some existential questions in you. And when we spoke off air, the bluntest you said was, what the fuck are we basically here for? So just tell me about that grieving process, if you could, and how did that inform actually the way that you approached life after he died? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing that it's really, and I, you know, I wrestle with this as a person and a therapist, I guess, is just the the mind, to me, mind-blowing suddenness that we're trundling along in life and just in that someone dies is life really that is is the line between life and death really that razor thin that without any warning it can be sparked out I mean I was also at the World Cup in Qatar and I don't know if you saw but an American journalist um, yes. died mm -hmm. I happened to be sat right next to him when it happened and you know again the you know again could hardly fail to be struck then by can that really happen that, that someone is you know, one minute sat next to you and obviously what happened to this American journalist was instant and catastrophic too. And I think just that say it's something about that fragility, which I sort of almost literally can't get my head around and the most sense I can make of it. And this was where it sort of all sat, well, sounds cliched and I don't live up to it half as much as I want. But when you're trying to make sense, I guess, of losses like this, one of the ways of trying to make sense you can get angry at the world and scream at the world and and rage about the unfairness and i've certainly done a bit of that but also just try and i guess take the the fragility of life and try and use it as that inspiration to live well live better i mean i certainly try and use roger use his memory as a way of basically telling myself plenty of times it's, it, it, it starts to feel like it slips into cliche, but, but hopefully it doesn't if you try and live true to it of get on with your life, you know, when you feel that, you know, is this a risk I can take about changing from journalism to therapy? I think, hang on a minute, what's, you know, really? Are you, what are you risking here? Is it really that big a deal? Take the leap. So I think mm -hmm. the best sort of, it's not a tribute to him, it's up to me to sort of live my own life, but I'd like to bear it in mind to hopefully make me bolder, hopefully make me grab life by the balls at least as much as I've ever done. And I think that is my best way of making sense of what can feel, say, so 
sad and senseless and almost unbelievable that these things hit you out of the blue like that. I think events like these in our lives, Matt, and we've obviously gone through them ourselves, make you realise perhaps more pertinently the old cliche of tomorrow isn't promised and to live every day like your last. And it really does come to fruition when you lose people like this so suddenly and so shockingly without full explanation at the time. I just want to ask as a final question before we reflect on your mental health journey, if Roger was listening to this podcast, and I'm sure he is somewhere, what do you think he would say to you? And what do you think you would say to him? Would he say to you, read the FT more? Or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he would. Um, there's a brilliant, brilliant therapist, Irvin Yalom, who has written many great books. And if, you know, it, it's almost like the place I would start for anyone who's interested in, in mental health and, and the actual sort of professional world of it is he's written a book called Love's Executioner, which is sort of case studies that he's done. And it's just, it reads like the best novels, basically. But this is about real life people. And, but he uses a phrase called the rippling effect, which is that you know, every human who dies, or every human, but, you know, particularly even after they die, there are these ripples of influence that still flood out and those ripples that affect the people who knew them. And those ripples, it's like a sort of stone thrown into a pond. Those ripples keep going, even when they're almost imperceptible. And I definitely feel that with Roger, that he's, I feel those ripples on a daily basis. And, you know, if I could speak to him, it would be... say it would be that battle between the terrible terrible sadness of it but grateful to have known him grateful to have shared so much with him and yeah I'd like to say I would say to him that I'm trying to live life as he would want those of us who are still lucky enough to be here to do which is live it the best way possible. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now before we move on to mental health chat Matt so a what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the Matt who was perhaps lost in that perpetual rat race and not having time to think about who he was perhaps the Matt in the middle of that therapy journey wondering what direction to go in life or the Matt who was grieving for his friend Roger what would you say to him knowing what you do now you know, I've wondered whether I should have wised up earlier and, you know, occasionally, you know, helpful to sort of ask the question. But equally, I, I don't think it's any point in getting too hung up on the answer. I, you know, there's some colleagues I've met on different counselling courses doing it in their 20s. And I've always just been almost awestruck <laughs> that anyone has the self-awareness and the wisdom to to embark on that, say, because so much of the training is about self-awareness. You know, it's impossible to start it without really just saying, right, I am willing to dive headfirst into self-awareness. I mean, that is, say, certainly for the early years of training, that is so, so much of it. And, and to be able to do that for people in their 20s, you know, I look back and I was just a, just sort of rampaging through life without, without really quite knowing what I was doing when I look back and, and say I could castigate myself for that, but maybe that is just how it had to be. I try and give myself slack for that now rather than just think, you know, you idiot, you could have worked this out. Just sort of join back to that phrase, join the dots on my personality when I was, mm. you know, 25. I've given myself enough sort of slack to realise that maybe that's, it was going to take longer. I feel very glad that I have found a new 
world and profession that I also love. I just think it's endlessly fascinating. I think people are fascinating. I mean, Irvin Yalom's genius is that he can make any life sound like it is worthy of a novel in itself. He can take any client and, you know, just fill you with wonder at the life that person is living. You know, I've now I'm seeing clients as a as a trainee. It's hard, you know, but it is endlessly fascinating. I mean, even those sessions when it's a struggle and you, you know, you have a client who's clearly very buttoned up and struggling, there is just that fascination with what is it in this person that is buttoning them up and how do I help them to explore themselves and to hopefully find their full potential. And I've certainly got a long way to go to explore mine, but I just think that curiosity, I've thought long and hard about, you know, this sort of trait of curiosity and how do you define it? What makes it? What fuels it? And I still haven't got an answer. So if anyone out there has, you know, what is is curiosity? What is it? Is it? Is it? A, yeah. Is it a mental skill? Is it something that bubbles up from within? Where does it come from? I'm not sure. Is there is there a book out there about curiosity? I'm glad. I sort of feel like I've got my share of it. And this curiosity about just about people and what makes them tick. Yeah, it's great to have found a sort of second career that is an outlet for it. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Matt, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I would say it's much better than it was. I can disappear down a few different rabbit holes of self-doubt or stress like many people, but I'm in a much more robust place than I've ever been. Brilliant. And what mental health conditions or issues, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I don't know if it's conditions. I mean, I, you know, I'm just aware now of traits I have that can be unhealthy and, and unhelpful. You know, I can turn stuff on myself far too quickly. I've got a terrible, terrible, terrible self in a critic. And, you know, you realise you're never going to get rid of it. You just try and learn to live with it better. And the inner child, I think we all have, it's learning that that inner child, you know, you just sort of need to be aware of it and hold it close and look after it rather than let it take over your life. So I think it's it's just that awareness that you have those inner voices and, and it's just having a better relationship with them. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Yeah, I think it probably took into my, I think I knew stuff was bubbling around, but I think it took to my 40s to just think, look, there is a better way than this. You've got stuff here that you Mm. just need to sort of get to grips with. So yeah, I mean, I'm probably 40, 45, which as discussed, feels maybe 20 years later than it might have done. But there's no right or wrong age, mate. (laughs) Exactly. Better 45 than 65. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a big weight or burden had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I have to say the first probably serious one was when I did walk in to see a therapist. I think I might have touched on stuff before with friends, but I think it was that walking in to, to see mm-hmm. a therapist. And I, and I would say it very quickly turned from daunting to relief it very quickly became just a wow this is a place where I can just let it all hang out basically Mm -hmm. and just find to have the confidence and trust of a good therapist to me just felt like thank god for that what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say to you a sound a sensation being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet 
Yeah, no, I think that's still a, a work in progress. I, I think to me, it's probably just whether this analogy makes sense to people, you know, like on phones when you have that storage capacity and it's up to mm-hmm. you know full storage and the basically the, you know the phone starts slowing down and I've always just think I need 10% spare capacity to to <laughs> to live a good healthy life if I'm up to 99% then I'm doing something wrong so my way of working out if I'm happy and like have I got that spare 10% that I can just do something spontaneously or I've just got that bit of slack where I can say you know what let's go for a walk in the park so that is my yeah I don't know if say if the phone analogy makes sense but I need that empty bit of storage just that I can make space for the fun things the spontaneous things and conversely what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked outside of therapy and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't yeah I try uh, again it's referring to that spare capacity how much I meditate I would say Mm -hmm is a barometer in itself you know if I'm in a good place I meditate most days even if it's just for 10 minutes I find that mindfulness is such a useful addition to the therapy it's just this sort of almost I mean I do it not as homework but it just feels like it's just that really good day-to-day tick over of just taking that bit of time out to yeah just to self-reflect and just to sort of quieten the mind I've got a very busy feels like I've got some busy voices within and it just shuts them up even briefly and I think that's uh, been a hugely healthy habit. What is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health or self-help related but it doesn't exclusively have to be it could be fiction and if not a book play podcast or whatever piece of popular culture medium. I would say, I mean, I've got a daft amount of books on my shelves, far too many sports books to be healthy. But I mean, I've mentioned Irvin Yalom before. I mean, I can't recommend him enough just as a, you know, both as an incredibly smart writer and therapist, but just very accessible. So say if anyone is interested in, in that world, I would start with him. And I would just say music, music. You know, we talked about my friend Roger before I put on an album you know, the cure in his case, um, to think of him. I love music, not just for great tunes and great sounds, but I think it takes us to places in our past and makes us reflect and is its own little sort of journey. So I'd, I'd say buy an Irvin Yulon book or uh, disappear into great sounds. I've got two questions left. So the first one is, if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, yeah, it's tough because I also don't want to sound too evangelical on this one but I can only speak for myself and just say that just the self journey to self-awareness it is daunting and it can be painful and hugely upsetting but I would just feel that it's never time that's wasted it's you know it's it's so much that is healthy about getting as much self-awareness as possible I know schools are getting much better at it but I've had a wonder whether you know psychology and and certainly mindfulness should be more part of a mainstream education I say I know it's coming into schools even at primary schools they're starting to do mindfulness stuff now and secondary school psychology is becoming a more mainstream subject but let's just say I'm glad for that shift because I think introducing people to that ability to self-reflect is hopefully a really healthy thing. And as a final question, this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Good question in some ways because it spans the two jobs I've done. I mean, obviously coming through sport and through journalism, which have both been sort of very male and macho worlds at times. And I've seen the shift myself. I mean, 
think within the journalism industry, people are now approaching each other about mental health and talking about it in in ways that it was unthinkable when I started in the 90s. I think obviously in sport, we've seen many athletes, you know, men and women, but, you know, as you know there is obviously plenty of rightful discussion about how hard it is for men often to talk and we're very aware of male suicide rates because of that but you know we've seen many many elite athletes talk about their struggles and uh, and I think it's not a fix in itself but anything that breaks down those sort of stigmas should and, and must be healthy. And on that note it's been an absolute pleasure Matt Dickinson thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me mate absolute pleasure and i really enjoyed it and yeah good to to reflect and it's made me actually ask some questions i hadn't asked of myself for a while so plenty to think about well that's it for this episode of the just checking podcast i want to say a big thank you to matt for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him i will put a link to where you can follow matt on social media in the show notes and if you're a west ham england fan or man united fan I'll also put some links to purchase his two books too. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying, please give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can go to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. Those links are on our link tree. That's linktr ee slash vent help uk we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent